0: So we've reached the end of the journey of discovery that I set out on a few months ago. What have I learned over the course of talking to my guests and exploring anxiety during season one? What was the point of it all? Has the journey changed me? What am I going to take away with me going forward? Welcome to the bonus final episode of season one of The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks How can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Lei Ui, I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy-type qualifications. I'm a writer, and like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts has been to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. In this final bonus episode, I look back on my conversations with my five guests and reflect on what gift each of them gave me. I also share with you some behind-the-scenes moments and encounters that I experienced as I worked on this project. Together, everything that happened on the record and off the record all contributed to what I learned during this journey and continues to inspire me as I develop season two of The Anxiety Advantage along a new intriguing theme. So, listen on. To start with, let's look back at episode one and episode three, where it's just me talking into the microphone for a total of an hour and a half or so. I have to admit, as I recorded myself, it felt pompous and arrogant. I felt like an imposter. Who was I to talk about anxiety? My anxiety seems quite mild compared to other people. It felt presumptuous and self aggrandizing to think my experiences would be relevant to anyone else. This anxiety about whether or not I had a right to be doing this podcast showed up in various ways. In preparing the scripts for both episodes, I initially veered away from going too deeply into my own story. I kept it glib and light and safe. But when I read back over the drafts, I knew they were untruthful and therefore weak and not worthy of anyone's time. Over the summer months, as I talked to other people about this project, so many of them shared their own anxiety stories with me. They all seemed relieved to hear that others experienced anxiety too. And most of them told me they did not have a medically diagnosed condition, just like me, but they carried the burden of anxiety inside them every day of their lives. It is for these people that I realised I had to step up. In those moments of doubt and uncertainty about this project, I remembered the conversations we had, the glisten of unformed tears in their eyes, the shy words in a WhatsApp message. We all feel that we struggle alone, but in fact, we are many, and there is comfort in knowing that what we are privately going through is what everyone else is going through too. Holding these people in my mind gave me a purpose that cut through my anxious imposter syndrome. So I made myself take time to dig beneath the glibness and write from my heart. It was difficult and scary, but made the episodes, I hope, more authentic, real, and respectful of my listeners' time. There were also times when I shied away from contacting people I hoped to invite on as guests on the podcast. My angsty Annie in my head kept telling me that these people were too important and too grand to take any notice of my emails and my podcast. Why would they bother to reply to me? Better to not try at all. But I had a little chat with dear angsty Annie. I said, we don't know that they won't reply. What's the worst that could happen anyway? They don't reply. (laughs) How is that the end of the world? they might reply we don't know and so angsty annie and i set about composing emails to my wish list of guests and guess what most of them replied and they not only replied they said yes it sounds like a valuable project i would be interested to be involved for me my anxiety about potentially negative reactions from my wish list of guests turned out to be misplaced But I don't regret feeling anxious and I don't feel stupid for my anxiety either. Reframing that anxiety in a positive way. Actually, my angsty Annie was helpful because she made me think about how best to craft my interview requests. She and I wrote emails that respected my interviewees and their time. We gave them the right amount of information to make a decision about whether or not to take part in the podcast better that approach, than emails that might otherwise have been pushy, entitled, and potentially rude. This project has also made me much more self-aware whenever anxiety shows up. In the past, I would have had a knee-jerk reaction and responded in old, habitual, unhealthy ways. More recently, I have noticed anxiety turning up and named her Oh, hello there, anxiety, my old friend. And I have tried to reframe her as a friend and ally in the here and now. That's helpful sometimes, but there are other times too when it is still a struggle. I remind myself, there is no miracle cure. This is one approach of many, and it's a work in progress. Every now and then, when anxiety is present... I mention it to my friends and family and my partner. Not as an excuse, not as a plea for them to help me, nor to ask them to fix me or give me special treatment, but rather simply so that they too can be aware of anxiety sitting there alongside me. Just giving you the heads up, I might say. I'm feeling anxious about X or Y. There's nothing you can do, really. It's just so you know that's the reason if I'm a bit quiet or if I seem a bit off. That's been helpful for everyone because it means there isn't a hidden mood or driving force behind the surface. It's all out in the open. And sometimes it's been good to take the mickey too, to laugh at myself and to be teased by my partner or friends. I would joke, oh no, I'm anxious about being anxious. Or they might rib me, hey, don't overthink it. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe is as good a way as any to choose what you want. I did not know very much about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, before talking to nanny and anxiety blogger Ellie Russell in episode two. I felt like I was prying when I asked her to talk about her personal and subjective experience of the disorder, but she shared her story with honesty and humour and without shame. She was not diagnosed till she was around 13, so she lived the early years of her life in the grip of anxious drives that compelled her to behave in ways that others around her could not understand, nor did she understand them herself. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to grow up in the power of such fearful forces, and I'm grateful to Ellie for giving us a glimpse into her inner world. What I love about Ellie is not just her ability to articulate what has been going on for her, but also her sense of humour and energy. When we recorded the episode, she had just had an operation for something unrelated to her OCD, and you would not know it. She does not see herself as a victim of OCD. With the help of therapy and counselling, she has learnt to manage the disorder and lives with it alongside her. The overriding sense is that she is a strong young woman, lively, intelligent, articulate, interested in the world and people around her, who has a great sense of humour and the ability to laugh at herself. What emerged most strongly for me from our conversation is that her experiences have given her empathy, patience and kindness to sit with others when they are going through anxiety or other challenges. In the same way, that she has learned to sit with her own periods of anxiety and OCD. In talking with Ellie, I realised that I'm not so used to being empathetic with others when they express their anxiety. I want to shut them down, tell them, rather harshly, to suck it up and get on with it. I do not have much patience with anxious people. I'm not very proud to admit this, especially in such a public space as this podcast, But my sense is that it is because I am and have always been harsh on myself when my own anxiety shows up. I've mentioned my angsty Annie, the little scared voice that worries and worries in my head, wringing her little invisible hands. Perhaps her counterpart is the harsh critic inside me, that dismissive, sneery voice that blows out an aggressive sigh and rolls his eyes when I feel small and scared and anxious. It's the voice that says to me, stop being so ridiculous. Pull yourself together and get on with it. The harsh critic is never helpful. That tone, those words, the eye rolling, I don't think those are best tools for encouraging someone or for bringing out the best in them. And yet I do it often to myself and no doubt to others around me. This insight into myself is not a comfortable one, but it is a valuable one. I'm resolved to help the harsh critic relax, find ways to dissipate his defensive tone and manner. I'm hoping that the same sorts of tools as befriending my anxiety may also be helpful with the harsh critic. After all, I think the defensiveness is a form of protection, rather like the anger I talk about in episode three, that propelled me out of the house to work on days when I felt horribly anxious. The harsh critic is only trying to protect me. So might he feel more able to stand down and relax if I can also sit him down for a chat? Look, it's okay. Let me just feel this anxious feeling. It will be fine. It's not the end of the world. It's just a feeling. You don't need to fill the space with anger to cover up the anxious feeling. Might that help quieten down my harsh critic, and so allow empathy and kindness to step into the space instead? In episode four, I had a wide-ranging discussion with James Wood, aka author J.W. Wood, about the speed of technology and our relationship with technology over the last hundred years. We looked at how technological developments have always been with us from the early industrial age through to the telegraph and the first factories. And of course, technological developments will always be with us. It's pointless to think about banning technology or trying to turn back the tide, which would be practically impossible anyway. What came out of our conversation for me Is that we need to notice when we are experiencing anxiety that is potentially triggered by our digital life or our relationship with technology. If we're feeling anxious because of something we see or read on social media, whether it is the real news, fake news or FOMO, fear of missing out, or a tweet or a post or picture or video that stirs us up in a negative way, we need to pay attention to our feelings to recognise that it is our feelings to take responsibility for, to own our feelings. No one else is responsible for our feelings, whether we are feeling annoyed, angry, anxious, offended, upset. We cannot control what happens out there in the world, or on the internet, or what anyone else does, or says, or feels. But we are responsible for how we respond. James spoke eloquently about pause and take time to reflect, whether it is going on a literal or symbolic retreat from the digital fray. That pause gives us time in the real world to reconnect with our friends and family, our community and neighbourhood, face-to-face, person-to-person, because that ultimately helps us reconnect with ourselves and to remember who we are as human beings. James is a strong advocate for music, art and literature as means for us to reconnect with our humanity. We can re-engage with ourselves by going to plays and concerts, looking at art or reading books. Or we can create our own music, play an instrument, join a band, compose songs, or paint, draw, sculpt, write poems and stories, or cook, crochet, build furniture, James also reminded me that we are complex, but the computers that take us into the digital world are binary. They funnel us into division and absolutism. On, off, right, wrong, yes, no. But life is not as simple as that. We humans are not absolutes. We can hold more than one feeling and thought at any given moment. We are messy. And that is okay. In fact, it is more than okay. Being messy is part of the joy of being human and alive. From my discussion with James, what I have taken away is this. When we feel anxious about technology and our digital life, our anxiety is telling us to reclaim our humanity. It's not about being a dinosaur and throwing out our smartphones and computers. Technology has many positive uses and benefits, but rather, We need to think differently. Computers may be binary and absolute, but we do not need to be unthinking or robotic. We need to be the masters of our own choices about technology, not its slaves. We can only do this by taking responsibility for our own choices and our own feelings. Anxiety is a call to greater self-awareness, to making conscious choices, and to placing humans, ourselves and others, ahead of technologically-mediated engagements. River Oosley Brown is 25 and seems like an action man to me. He's a film producer and underwater cameraman, as well as a camera drone operator. He's comfortable on sailing boats and heading off at a moment's notice to far-flung places on filming assignments. As for me, I'm almost 60 and an arty-farty literary and theatre type, most comfortable at a cafe or restaurant having intellectual conversations and needing a long lead-in time to making any travel plans. And yet, we have a sparky chemistry across the divide, which I hope comes across in episode five when River and I got together to talk about the things that make us anxious. It felt liberating to both of us to talk about our anxieties, and there are many of them. It gave us energy to laugh about them together, taking the piss almost literally at one point when I shared that finding a place to go for a pee is one of the things that makes me anxious. Anxiety brought together two very different people, Different things scare each of us. River is happy with physical activities, but is anxious about social connections and relationships. I'm happy getting up on stage and giving off-the-cuff talks, as well as staged performances. But I'm anxious about team sport and things that need physical coordination. But anxiety is anxiety whatever form it takes, and it was the common bond that sparked our friendship. We both acknowledge that anxiety is a horrible thing that can be paralysing and stressful. Yet, our friendship around anxiety is not based on self-pity or feeling sorry for ourselves. And the last thing we want is for other people to feel sorry for us. Our friendship is based on laughter and creativity. Laughing together and laughing at ourselves feels healthy. It changes what might be a sad, Painful victim energy into something vibrant and buoyant. It gives us a sense of agency and a feeling that we can get through this together. I wonder how true that can be for so many other people. Could your anxiety give you something in common with someone unexpected if you could each speak openly about your anxious feelings? Might it give you a sense of solidarity and camaraderie with different people in your life? if you could all talk about anxiety. Could laughing about it, taking the mickey, taking the piss out of your anxiety with kindred spirits, change your energy, and theirs, around it? I also liked what River said about his experience of anxiety in the few weeks leading up to our recording of episode five. Whenever he felt anxious, he thought to himself, oh gosh, this is material for the podcast and it inspired him to access his creative self. Instead of being overwhelmed by his feelings, he could step back, like a sculptor, looking at his work, and engage with his anxiety in a more dispassionate way. He became curious about his anxiety, rather than experiencing it as problematic. Being aware of our anxiety and naming it when it pops into our lives can help us not be afraid of it. Once we have named it, we can make it into a fun, creative project. Maybe even give it a light-hearted title, like a sculpture, Nine Sad Lumps in a Landscape, or a short story, Dark Day Indulged. Or we can make something that has a more serious message, like Edward Munch's Scream, or Margaret Atwood's Dystopic Novels. Turning our anxiety into art whether it's light-hearted or more serious, can give us a sense of distance and even mastery. As artists, we can shape it and mould it rather than let it control us. We can use the energy that might overwhelm us instead to create something purposeful, fun and interesting, something that might be of service to others. My discussion with financial advisor Peter Ditchburn in episode 6 started out as an inquiry into financial anxiety. But as we talked, it evolved into an exploration of the decision-making process, especially in the context of big, life-changing moments. At such times, we can find ourselves gripped by intense anxiety as we cannot predict for certain the outcome of a major decision. When we reach an important crossroads in our life, we have to decide to turn left or right or stay where we are. Sometimes such a choice seems so overwhelming we feel unable to make a decision and we end up going round and round in excruciating circles. In my conversation with Peter, we saw that anxiety can be helpful if it encourages us to find the tools to make our decision. For example, finding out the relevant facts and figures and seeking out good, reliable advice from a solid source. But sometimes we can use fact-finding as a way of giving over our power to unhelpful anxiety. We just keep on asking questions and wanting to know one more thing in order to avoid making a decision. We need to step back at some point and have a chat with anxiety and ask her, Will this additional information really be critical to my decision? Will it mean the difference between, say, buying a house and not buying it? Yes, if there's structural damage perhaps to the house. But if there is no warranty on the boiler, am I really not going to buy this house because of that? In those moments when we're having this nice chat with anxiety, it may also do us well to remind her Dear anxiety, It is a false security to expect everything to be perfect once I make decision A or decision B. I trust in myself to sort out whatever challenges come along. So, actually, I can decide on either of these options with self-confidence. And once anxiety has quietened down a little, we can reconnect with our heart's desire. What do I want for my life? what is my most precious hope and dream? How does this decision take me one step closer to a happier, more fulfilled life? Because ultimately, that's what it's all about, growing, becoming happier and more fulfilled. And the most important, most powerful decision we have within our control is this. It is up to us to choose whether we let anxiety be a help or a hindrance towards living our most joyful life. Opera singer-turned-writer Jane Camack was one of the first people I interviewed for this series, although she appears only in episode 7. She came round to my house and we recorded our conversation in my living room. I was quite nervous, especially as I had to control all the tech equipment, as well as hold the conversation with Jane. My main worry was that something would go wrong with the tech. And invariably, with Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. The recording device stopped working after two minutes, but I only realised this 20 minutes into our discussion. I was incredibly embarrassed, but there was nothing for it but to start all over again. Jane was fantastic. She told me she was nervous too. And after a short break, we started the recording all over again. Jane told her stories again with verve and freshness. And you would not know when you listened to the podcast that this was the second time she was telling. It makes me laugh to think that for a discussion about performance anxiety, we both experienced performance anxiety. What I learned from Jane and our recording session is that although anxiety can paralyze us sometimes, it is also an energy that we can harness for performance and also other areas of our lives. Jane's advice, don't focus on ourselves, focus outwards, is very useful in distracting our busy, worrying minds to look outside of ourselves, to focus on our higher purpose instead. In performance, that higher purpose is doing our best for the audience and the rest of the cast. It's about being of service to the people around us. So in other situations, that is useful too. Rather than focusing on our anxiety, we can turn our attention to how we can be of service to our colleagues or friends and family. For Jane, being in the moment while she was on stage helped her focus she allowed herself to enjoy the music and fully inhabit the character she was playing. That's a good tip for anything that makes us anxious. I've been trying to be more present when I find myself feeling tense. By letting the moment completely fill up my mind and body, there is hardly any room left for anxious thoughts. And actually, being consciously present in all kinds of situations, not just anxious ones, helps me experience my life more fully on more occasions. With opera and theatre and other live performances, especially at world-class level such as La Scala and Glyndebourne, the actors and singers make it look so easy and effortless. But in reality, years of training are behind those performances and also months of preparation and rehearsals. I think that learning from the world of performance Can really be helpful. I believe that building in rehearsal and practice into our lives can help us become more confident and adept with situations that make us anxious. I have rehearsed certain behaviours to help me deal with moments when I feel uncertain. I used to be very nervous walking into a party or work gathering, so I watched and listened to other people who seemed relaxed and confident. I learnt from them. I would then try out what they did or said. I might try smiling or reaching out for a handshake the way I had seen someone do. I used some of the phrases I had heard other people say. At first, it felt odd to be acting like someone else or using someone else's words. But the more I did it, and here is the key, the more I was able to adapt those gestures and phrases to my own way of being and my way of speaking. By watching and learning, I gained the skills to connect with people, to put them at ease, to find things in common to chat about. It's like driving a car, as I've said elsewhere in this season. Each step is difficult at first, but after a while, we can drive instinctively. I took those social skills and made them my own. So they could fully and instinctively express my friendliness, my personality. And now I'm able to walk into any social situation and chat to people fully being myself and enjoying being present in the moment. Jane said anxiety means we care. We care about doing a good job, not letting people down. In the social situation example I mentioned, it means we care about making human connections. We care about not being rude. We care about showing up with our best selves. And I'm sure you can think of other situations where anxiety turns up because we care a great deal about something. Anxiety turning up is a good thing. We can take her energy in those moments to learn, to practice, to adapt whatever skills we need to help grow in whatever situation we find ourselves in. I found it fascinating to talk with stand-up comedian and director of Jericho comedy, Alex Farrow, about how laughter can allow us to speak about taboo subjects and things that make us anxious or uncomfortable. The trick, he explained, is that the setup of a comedic story needs to build to a release that allows the tension to explode into laughter. Something potentially offensive or sensitive needs the outlet of laughter at the end, and that laughter needs to be inclusive rather than divisive, bringing people together in a shared human connection with the story. We talked about why some political leaders fear satirists. Maybe, we mused, such leaders feel anxious about the security in their power. Maybe, we mused, such leaders feel anxious about the security of their power. Maybe they even feel insecure in themselves, and they realise that what the comedian is saying is truth. The satire feels too close to the bone, so it hurts them or scares them. They clamp down on satire because they feel so anxious about the legitimacy of their own standing that they fear that a joke could destroy their power and their sense of themselves. Laughter can be empowering, but it can also be destructive. Where do we draw the line? Who do we poke fun at? Those with power, yes. But laughter or mockery can be a form of bullying, If the subject of our joke is less powerful, as we know from the school playground. Stand-up comedy shows are infamous for potentially being bruising experiences if you're not prepared to be laughed at yourself in the audience. I've been to shows where the comedian randomly picks on people and teases or mocks them. Not everyone enjoys that. So I was interested to observe Alex in action at the Oxford Festival of the Arts, Before the show started, he wandered through the audience asking those in the front row if they were okay to be involved in his banter. I had not seen that before. It told me a lot about Alex, that he is a kind and thoughtful man, even while being able to joke and mock in his stand-up routine. My conversation with Alex in the final episode of this season one made me think about how helpful laughter can be to empower us against things that make us anxious or uncomfortable. I experienced that sense of empowerment myself, in fact, in episode five with River Oosley-Brown, as I mentioned earlier. But it is good to bear in mind when we laugh and joke among friends and family and with our partners. Are we making that joke at the expense of our friendship or relationship with this person? Are we being kind? Or are we dehumanising ourselves and the butt of our jokes for the sake of the joke? Are we using joking as a means of power play? We need to keep checking in. That doesn't need to be vocal. We don't need to actually say, hey, is my joke upsetting you? We just need to be self-aware. We can see for ourselves in the body language and facial expressions of the people around us. We can feel within ourselves if we have overstepped we may feel anxiety within us. And that's probably a good indicator that we need to be aware of where we are in relation to the line between a good laugh and a distasteful, hurtful joke. In the spring of this year, I had the idea to explore how I could reframe anxiety in a positive way. It was a personal question that I approached in my usual way. I vocalise everything So it was natural to me to just start talking about anxiety, tentatively at first, and only to my partner and close friends. And then, with greater curiosity about other people's experiences, as many of those I talked to started to share with me their own anxiety. I was also writing my thoughts and feelings down. And of course, being a writer and podcaster, it made sense to me to start then to open out these personal reflections and reach out to others through a creative work. So over the summer, I began to develop this podcast series. Since then, this journey that I've been on makes me feel like that little girl Boo in the animated movie Monsters, Inc., When we first see her, Little Boo, in the film, she's terrified of the monster in her closet. Once her adventure begins, she enters the world of monsters and gets to know her monster, Sully, the big furry creature whose job it is to scare her. In an interesting twist, it turns out that Sully is also scared of Little Boo, because in monster world, They believe that children are toxic and can kill monsters by touch. But by the end of their adventures, they see each other for who they are and are best of pals. My adventure was to head off into anxiety land and get to know my Sully, or as I call her, my angsty Annie, and also my harsh critic. Along the way, as in any good journey of adventure... I met all kinds of other people engaged with their own monsters in different ways. There was the canoeing instructor I met in the summer, a young man with clear blue eyes. I was on a kayaking day out and I told him I was anxious about doing the capsized drip. He said, No one likes hanging upside down in the river with water gushing up their nose. He told me, He had stopped kayaking after he almost drowned when he was 13, going down a whitewater river. But he loves being out on the water, so he took up canoeing instead and is now an instructor. He told me softly that he struggles with anxiety and depression and that it's difficult for men to talk about these things. Maybe men should talk more about their feelings, he said. He would love to get back into kayaking, And his friends have said that they will help him to do that, slowly and in stages. Then there are the many others who have messaged me to say that they too often feel anxious. People I hardly know have volunteered their stories. When I mention this podcast about anxiety, I see a look on their faces. Relief, an excitement, a connection, a drive that impels them to share their story. It's as if I've given them permission to talk about something that has been pressing on their heart. They open up and let the words come out, sometimes softly, sometimes with energy, always with a deep sincerity. Someone I spoke to said he was signed off work for physical health problems, but he knew in his heart it was stress and anxiety due to things going on at home in the family. He was expected to be the strong one, the one who took care of everyone and everything, and it was taking its toll. He was anxious and stressed, and it was easier to blame all that pain and difficulty on his work, rather than face that things had to change around his relationship with the people he loved. A figure in the public eye told me about a sudden panic attack that took them by surprise an ex-military man and CEO who had no difficulty doing mountain rescues, shared that he felt anxious in social situations. Public speaking coach Sarah Lloyd-Hughes has spoken openly about feeling terrified when she's on stage giving a talk in front of hundreds of people. And as an aside, I have invited Sarah to come on to season two of this podcast to talk about how to find the courage to face what many of us feel is a fate worse than death public speaking. More on season two coming up later. All these folk I met this year on my anxiety podcast adventure gave me talismans of wisdom, shared with me intriguing and enchanting tales. They helped me through quagmires and battles, offered me friendship and nourishment. And now, as the months have changed from spring and summer to autumn and winter, I have come to this waypoint at the end of season one. And I feel that it has been an immense privilege to have connected with all these courageous souls over the last few months in such real and human ways. I feel grateful to everyone who has shared their story and struggle with me, whether in these episodes or just in a passing conversation. So how has all this changed me? Well, sitting beside me is my friend, Anxiety. I would not say that we are best of pals yet. She still bothers me and sometimes still won't listen when I try and sit down to have a chat with her. She still chunters on with her hand wringing and circular pacing round and round the room. But we are having lots of good conversations and we don't take things as seriously as we used to. We bicker and I tease her about being like chicken licken the hen in that folktale that rushed around crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, when in fact it was just an acorn plopping onto her head. My friend Anxiety tries these days to be helpful rather than obstructive, offering suggestions rather than, as she used to do, dramatically and sometimes hysterically insisting on what I should or should not do. I still have anxieties, but I'm more able to be upfront about how I'm feeling. I don't feel the same internal pressure to pretend that I'm cool and confident all the time. I'm confident when I'm confident, and I'm not when I'm not. There is more of an alignment between my interior world and how I'm holding myself on the outside. But I feel it is important to say that I don't collapse into a gibbering wreck on the outside every time I feel anxious on the inside. I don't want to be defined by my anxiety. I don't want to be seen as a victim or a sufferer of anxiety. I'm not asking anyone to feel sorry for me or to do me any special favours or treat me with kid gloves. It's about just allowing myself to be as I am with my feelings not like a child asking to be taken care of, but as an adult who can take care of myself and my emotions. And actually, sometimes there's no real need for me to name anxiety out loud in any given moment. I can simply feel it inside, acknowledge that it is there, and accept that it is along for the ride. That's part of taking ownership for my feelings. I don't always need to vocalise everything. Sometimes I can just have a quiet chat with my old friend Anxiety in my internal breakout room and no one else needs to be involved. In some situations, just because I'm having feelings doesn't mean that everyone else also needs to take part in those feelings. The key is knowing when to vocalise out loud what I'm feeling and when to just have this private chat with my anxiety. Because part of being a good friend to others is about being aware of their feelings and where they are at. My feelings and my anxiety do not trump their feelings and whatever is going on for them. Sometimes it's right to put aside my own worries in order to focus on supporting and helping someone else or simply just to have a relaxing or fun time or to enjoy a lovely moment with the other people in our lives. Sharing positive and beautiful moments are as important as sharing the tough times. And certainly, thinking about others' well-being can often shake us out of ourselves and our own problems, and actually boost our own sense of self and purpose. So what does moving forward mean for me? The one thing that feels to me most helpful is to ask anxiety when she turns up. Is this thing you're worried about a real threat or a chicken licken overreaction? And then to weigh up whether it feels right to step up to the challenge or just let the feeling pass. If it is something real that I need to do something about, I can then enlist anxiety to help me do it at a level and pace that feels okay to both of us. I can also ask anxiety to help me assess what is the level of my abilities in relation to this new thing? Can I do it? Or do I need baby steps? How can I get help and encouragement in doing this thing? My anxiety is here to help me. She's a mentor, a guide, a friend, and an ally. When we fall in love or experience an adventure, we feel breathless, our hearts beat faster. It is thrilling, exhilarating, even scary, just like the symptoms of anxiety. I want to keep falling in love with my life, to keep experiencing new adventures. I don't want to feel dead inside, to feel nothing. I want to keep growing and crossing the threshold to new vistas, and new experiences. I want to make the most of my life. And that's not necessarily about doing wild and unusual things like, I don't know, bungee jumping off the Eiffel Tower. That may be on someone else's wish list, and I would cheer them on by the sidelines to go all out for their experience. My wish list is a little milder, shall we say. The point is that I don't want to let my anxiety stop me from doing the things that might thrill me or make me happier or give my life meaning and purpose. What about you? What would you love to do? And how can you enlist your anxiety to help you move forward towards those hopes and dreams just waiting for you round the next corner? I'm really excited to be starting work on Season 2 of The Anxiety Advantage, which we'll be launching in the new year. The theme of Season 2 is anxiety and courage. Now that we are friends with anxiety and she is walking along beside us, how do we go forward together as a team to do all the things we would love to do? I reckon we need some courage to help us along. In fact, I'm wondering whether... Actually, anxiety potentially gives us the opportunity to be courageous. Because when we do something that makes us anxious, when we feel the fear and do it anyway, isn't that what courage is all about? Someone who jumps out of a plane, let's say, and is like, meh, no big deal, that's not bravery. They're just doing it like they're walking down the street. But for someone who is really scared, The energy it takes to do the same thing. And for some people, that can include walking down the street. When someone faces their anxiety and does something that terrifies them, that surely is true courage. So I have invited onto season two, some inspiring and insightful guests whom I hope will be able to help us work out how to add courage to our little team. I have already recorded episodes with Dr. Sarah Woodhouse and Lou Bentz, two trauma therapists who themselves have found the courage to overcome their own childhood traumas. Also, I have in the bag a recording with leadership communications expert Sarah Lloyd-Hughes talking about how to find the courage to stand in the spotlight and speak up as leaders. And I reckon you'll also love my conversation with comedian and author Rosie Wilby about anxiety and the courage it takes to leave or commit to relationships. That's just a handful of the tasty episodes to look forward to in season two. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe or follow the Anxiety Advantage on your pod listening app. It's free. You can use the link com forward slash anxiety advantage. That way, season two will magically appear in your app as soon as it is published. Also, can I ask you a favour? Well, actually, it's two favours. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you be up for leaving a lovely review on your pod listening app? That would encourage the algorithm elves to share this podcast with other people who may be interested in making friends with their anxiety. Alternatively, can I ask you to share this podcast with your friends and others you know via email or social media? You can simply send them the link podfollow.com forward slash anxiety advantage, which opens up this show on their pod listening app. Wouldn't it be rather good if more people started to think of anxiety as their friend? I'm Yang Mei Uri. For the show notes page to this episode and to find other episodes in this podcast series, go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the Anxiety Advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where I'm at TigerSpiritUK. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can also simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening, and see you again soon.